Welcome to the Token Security Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Justin McCarthy from StrongDM. And I'm Max Allenstahl from Google. And we're hair. We're hair. We do have a lot of hair. Our hair helps product teams ship more scale. <laughs> Hello, this is Max Saltonstall from Google Cloud. And today we're joined by Jeff Burkhardt from Zymogen. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, thank you. So you are a senior engineering director. What does that mean in English? Making sure we have enough bandwidth, making sure we're getting clear on requirements. So a lot of communication, collaboration, coordination, prioritization, balancing the strategic view with the tactical. Awesome. And can you tell us just a little bit about what Zymergen is doing? We are doing genetic research. So customers come to us with uh, an existing microbe and they're looking to us to optimize it. But we're basically doing what Henry Ford did to the automobile industry, which is having repeatable processes that we can uh, apply at scale, applying technology across the board. So robotics, image analysis, data science, machine learning, workflow automation, strain recommendation, and more. Cool. Very cool. In some ways, it sounds like you have a problem that's actually pretty distinct from a lot of the folks we talk to here. We're covering code reviews today, um, and it sounds like actually there are a lot of elements of your system that could potentially go wrong. We typically look at things through a security lens here on the Token Security Podcast, but really this code reviews apply to correctness throughout your code base. So I'd, I'd love for you to start us off with just a little description of how code reviews are structured in your environment and really what you're looking for in a typical code review. So one, we review everything. So every check-in requires a pull request approval, a, a tool we use for building context, knowledge transfer, supporting collaboration, some visibility across our groups. The Token Security Podcast is brought to you by StrongDM. StrongDM easily integrates with your identity provider to onboard, offboard, and audit your team's access to databases and servers. One consistent theme that, that I've noticed in code reviews over the years is essentially the, the fundamental role of organizing the review and organizing the code for visibility um, so that you actually have some chance of noticing <laughs> a problem during a review because it's far too easy to simply pass your eyes over the code. But if it's not structured in a way that will elicit some notice, then, then you're not going to get the same value out of it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you optimize for visibility? And actually, one, since you guys are in biology, uh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to say, I imagine sort of dyeing a cell <laughs> or, uh, or inserting the contrast uh, to, in an imaging uh, operation. So can, can you just talk a little bit about how you increase your odds of noticing that there might be a problem as humans are looking at the code? Yeah, there's a few aspects. So one is you know, the magnitude of the pull request. On one hand, you know, we have a very strong bias towards check-ins of 500 lines or less. So we're really trying to avoid the monolithic check-in. But that said, part of what we try to account for is design reviews and code reviews as part of our sprint planning. Because, you know, if there's a significant body of work, people are going to have to have context and knowing that in advance so they'd actually plan the bandwidth. I mean, one of the biggest challenges is I'm working towards a deadline. I have this massive check-in at the end of my project that's now time critical, and I've imposed this huge burden 
on you and you have your own work that's planned and you didn't have that factored in. So, you know, having enough lead time up front so that people can build context with the design documents, they can factor it into their bandwidth, having that context established so that you're not coming in flat-footed into the code review. Do people ever work in pairs? So there's this assumption that you and I are developing this solution together, and then at the end you're gonna check in and I'm gonna review it or vice versa. So we have that context as we go, we build it together? Yeah, definitely try to maintain some continuity on sort of larger things that are strategically important. The other thing we do is we try not to be single-threaded on any project. So typically, you know, having two people and maybe there's a third person outside of them that's doing the code reviews so that we've got some objectivity. I think another really important factor is the, I've been in organizations where the architects were really uber individual contributors you know, they could get, you know, tremendous things done individually, but it's a major gear shift for them to have more of a heads up orientation where doing code reviews, understanding what are the major architectural things that are coming through so that they have their bandwidth to catch those things. Um, and then we're focusing. So if somebody is introducing a new caching layer, that can be you know, a major area to focus on you know, for correctness and reliability and uptime and capacity planning and you know, all the different dimensions that are needed to make that work. And so again, you know, having context in terms of the, the magnitude, what the impact of the system is, and, you know, so it's not just looking at correctness on a line by line basis in the code, but understanding what are the overall requirements for this thing fitting successfully into the system. How do you distribute responsibility between the QA process, um, any automated testing that's done and code review? So in other words, what's something that could definitely only be caught in code review that wouldn't be caught during, a, you know, when a product manager is accepting uh, some new product, for example, uh, during an accept. So we are at an interesting place in our evolution. The engineering, the testing is all done by engineers currently. Um, and so we're writing unit tests, we're writing integration tests, and the test cases themselves are part of the code review and part of the check-ins and part of what's you know, necessary for it to be considered complete. We are getting to a hybrid model where uh, we're building up a dedicated test team that will focus on the automation framework and we'll be working with the teams so that the individual engineering teams can be contributing to the framework. The challenge, uh, we have a very strong individual team focus. And so as a management team, we have to complement that with sort of cross-threaded issues. And testing is definitely something that needs to be coherent across the tech stack. How do you decide who's gonna be doing a given code review? Are there requirements? Do I need to meet a certain bar or have a certain expertise to review a pull request that you've submitted? We do a, a mix. So on the one hand, we make things, you know, we just make general pull requests and anybody in the organization can pick that up. But we also do targeted pull requests. So when we need somebody's you know, specific domain expertise, you know, we tag them um, for that. Do the general ones get picked up in a timely fashion? I can picture a tragedy of the commons situation. As a management team, we're kind of keeping that in the foreground because obviously throughput with pull requests is like 
critical for velocity. Um, and we also, I think we have a very, very strong orientation towards uh, collaboration. I mean, we're all sitting in an open area and everybody's accessible and really encouraging people to get up out of their seats. I have a really strong bias towards chalk talks. I mean, you know, design reviews or you know, design documents are great. You know, there's a need for formal meetings, there's a need for code reviews, but, you know, really supporting a culture of collaboration uh, where people are having open discussions and brainstorming meetings early on. You know, so our hope really with code reviews is by the time you get to that point, you really, it's a review for correctness, you know, of the implementation because you've had the chalk talks, you're aligned on requirements, the design reviews have happened, the thing has been socialized, and now you're really down to the execution of it. Are your uh, code reviews currently configured for, for blocking or non-blocking mode? So in other words, um, do they gate releases uh, or are they in some cases conducted after release? In my career, I've worked in both modes. Right. So we um, were very close to gating. So the official policy is that the feedback uh, for code review are suggestions. They're not absolute requirements. That said, you know, reaching consensus, and if there is, you know, if people, you know, if there's a real strong difference of opinion, we will tend to escalate that to the tech lead, you know, or the engineering managers. If, if we couldn't get it resolved, work out in time, it would block the release of the feature, but it would not block the overall release. So we have a very strong emphasis on feature flags, uh, being able to turn off features, and you know that's useful both for managing the release but also managing things once they get to production so we want to be able to back things out as soon as humanly possible restore the service as quickly as possible um, engineers can go off and diagnose the issue troubleshoot but they don't have to have the system down while they're doing that so in any in any code base there are going to be areas of the code that are more sensitive than others. So I, I'm wondering how your team um, maintains their perception of that sensitivity gradient. So I think since you mentioned robots before, um, if I'm uh, describing the motion of a robot and, uh, and I don't do the calculus right, uh, that arm is gonna crash, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I don't wanna crash the arm because that breaks a very expensive robot. Uh, on the other hand, if I just flub the make file and the build fails in the CI system, well then, you know, that's recoverable before it goes to production. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you treat sensitivity in different parts of the code base? Yeah, so we definitely have tech leads that have ownership of specific parts of the code base. Again, I try not to be single-threaded on that. So, you know, sharing the domain knowledge. So ideally there's going to be two or more people um, that are qualified for the different areas. But, you know, for example, we've got a central authentication access control system um, that, you know, is critically, you know, is mission critical uh, for our services. Um, I have a couple domain owners and, you know, they're, you know, that's, that's closely monitored. Um, as it, you know, I have people that are responsible for the data schema, um, you know, as we're evolving uh, the evolution of the database um, and the different data stores. Um, 
you know, one example, we have, you know, roughly plus or minus uh, six engineering teams. Um, the, uh, and they're all advancing the data schema uh, in different ways. Um, and we have a need for basically uh, different kinds of data access. So uh, whether it's a graph database, whether it's Elasticsearch, um, whether it's a relational um, data mart or a data warehouse. Um, and so <clears throat> I have a hub and spoke model where there's a couple people on my core infrastructure team that um, they, they have the, whole, the overview of all the different pieces. Um, and then I have an additional four people uh, that are reaching out to all the engineering teams on an ongoing basis where we're talking about the evolution of the schema and then we're bringing that back in. Um, and so trying to balance this uh, model of autonomy for the individual teams, we want people to be empowered, um, but we also want the evolution to go forward in a coherent way. I'll offer um, one thing we do on our team is uh, we have automated uh, sensitivity guards. So we write code that reads our code uh, and, uh, and basically depending on what aspect of the code base is touched and in what way, um, it will actually trigger process steps. So you can imagine it sort of opening a ticket that says like, hey Jeff, uh, you have to go look at that change <laughs> based based on some high level policy definition. I can imagine that going very well or very poorly. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the, it it does uh it it concentrates your attention on the the parts that must have the maximum focus, uh, right? Um, as opposed yeah. to a tweak in the CSS, a color change, for example, that might uh that exactly. that so yeah. Jeff, are there any moments that you recall where you? ran into something that made you change how you did code reviews or handling code and uh, the effort and the sharing and the collaboration, something that was maybe a, a wake up moment. Yeah, so I've certainly been in other organizations where it, obviously it's easy for things to get personalized and feelings to get hurt. You know, it's easy to focus on nits which can be fine to be pointed out, but um, so one thing that we do here is we have a process where we basically have a code review meeting where we onboard new engineers and we bring in, a, it's a mix of current engineers that are familiar with our process, an engineering manager who's running the meeting and new engineers. And we have a brainstorming session about, you know, what have you seen that's, that hasn't worked? You know, what has worked? What do you think are some of the points? And then we socialize, you know, what we're looking for, which is fundamentally the, the culture around code reviews is, I think, fundamental to the health of the entire engineering organization. So if you, you can't have healthy discussions around design reviews, in code reviews, things will break down, you know, as a direct consequence of that. We have a, you know, if there's a major architectural consideration, you know, highlight that and socialize it before it comes time for the pull request so that people have context that are, that's built up. If the code reviews are going to require some deep domain knowledge, then have those discussions and have those people in the design reviews and have continuity so that people aren't flat-footed when it comes 
time for the, you know, when the check-in happens. It can be important to point out when things are uh, suggestions versus, hey, you know, I think this would be a, a really important thing to address. And, and again, socializing that, you know, in our experience makes a huge, huge difference because, yeah. I was curious how you also make sure that code reviews are conducted with uh, respect and civility and that sort of inclusivity because with a new person coming to an established engineering group that has their own ways of working and talking and collaborating it can be very easy to feel like the outsider who doesn't know what's going on or doesn't know how to talk and how to contribute and you can make a team much more effective by letting people contribute more quickly so how, how have you enabled new members of the, your engineering org to get productive fast yeah so when we have an onboarding buddy uh, so we pair people up. We have an onboarding checklist. So we have a standard set of uh, things that we do, including architectural overview and tech talks, etc. Um, and then we encourage them to do a check-in, you know, within their first uh, week or two of being here on site. And so, and again, you know, doing that with your coding buddy. So you know, you have the orientation meeting and you know, it's a small check-in and you're just walking through the process and just normalizing it because there's nothing like going through the process and, you know, people just, you know, it gets normalized in that, um, yeah, we do give feedback. You should expect comments. Comments are great. You know, it's actually going to make your code stronger. It's not that you failed in doing this. And if there is, even if you do get a, a a large magnitude of unexpected feedback, hey, that's a great point for follow-up, right? So go talk to the person. You know, we're not gonna like bat this back and forth, you know, with our keyboards. Um, you know, this culture of engagement and that engagement is appreciated. And so again, socializing that so that people can know that it's expected, it's not overly personalized, and we're really looking towards this kind of lean-in model you know, where people, you know, we appreciate the engagement, we appreciate the early chalk talks, we appreciate the questions, we appreciate the feedback. Feedback is a gift. Not everyone knows it, but it is. Yeah. So Jeff, um, as, as we all know, uh, from a security point of view, um, the scourge of the 90s and the 2000s were C buffer overflows. Uh, and that was a byproduct. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. <laughs> so no, so that's that's a byproduct of the of underlying architecture. Uh, it's a byproduct of the language. Um, but thankfully, um, tools came along, and static analysis tools made uh, made everything go away, and all problems were solved. <laughs> so uh, conv convince me that uh, that we just that we just can't just add a tool somewhere in the mix here, and all of our problems will go away. There is an interesting tool we're currently evaluating from Git Prime that provides visibility into the code review process itself. And you, so you can see which pull requests are waiting, uh, you know, are in the queues, what the lag times are, what's the distribution of people getting pull requests, what's the, you know, change rate, uh, you know, with check-ins, you know, it measures, you know, apparently has measurements around thrashing. And so I think that's pretty interesting. Right. I mean, I, you know, static analysis, you know, code coverage tools, they, you know, have some value. Uh, they do what they do. As we all know, there's no substitute for human intelligence, domain knowledge, 
domain, you know, sense of ownership uh, of different areas of the code base. But again, you know, support for the code review process itself, like, you know, what's our throughput? Why are things getting delayed? What are people, you know, where are people overloaded? Um, where, where do we see the volume of changes that are coming through? Having that level of visibility on the code base, um, I think is, adds, a, adds a pretty great dimension to the ability to support the process. If I could just put out a request to the open source community and, and the tool universe, I would I would definitely uh, either pay for or thank profusely anyone who builds a tool that can accumulate the number of uh, accumulate the seconds that eyes have looked at a line of code across oh. and uh, across the code editor and brow browsing in a web view. Uh, I would just I would love to know because I would love to be able to see uh, like in my editor today as I click on a line and I get a nice blame uh, that reminds me that I wrote that line. Uh, but also love to know and someone else has had this open on the screen for you know five people have looked at it for a total of fourteen minutes in the last six months. So right. anyway, anyone that wants to build that, I'm your first customer. Yeah, I think um, you know unintentional obfuscation is is definitely an evil. I mean, I've seen people that were absolutely brilliant, could write really terse code that was, you know, maybe even completely correct. But if it's not maintainable, if other people can't read it, the legibility, um, you know, clarity, I, I think that's a major requirement and feature you know, of the code base itself. Uh, do you have ways, do you have automated tooling uh, to do things like conforming to style or uh, reducing, you know, a noticed anti-patterns so that you can automate making that code more readable by future engineers on your team? Because I think that that thing that a human can do that a computer can't yet is, is it going to be a real pain for me to modify this code in a year? Right. You know, we have some code coverage tools. We have some style check tools. Um, so we do the basics. I'd say we're not, I, I, we're not particularly sophisticated in our depth of usage of those tools. We're really in an environment um, where we're moving pretty fast. There's a very strong orientation towards agility. We're working directly with the scientists and the scientists are developing the science as we go. So it's, it's truly a culture of experimentation. Let's build this airplane while we're flying there. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, iterating on the data model, you know, figuring out, uh, you know, different ways of approaching it. You know, so we have to refactor things, you know, and we know that consciously uh, that this is in an experimentation phase and it isn't hardened yet. And so we're really kind of leaning into uh, the agility. Why do code reviews at all? If, if speed is such an important factor, shouldn't you throw them out? Right. So then we do have a hybrid, right? So just, again, we have part of our system needs to run like a factory. So we have, like, I'm responsible for our core infrastructure. So databases, data services, search, job execution, and the other five, six engineering teams are all dependent on the solidity um, of that code base. And, you know, access control obviously is, is a big part of that. My, the, the software from my group, need, you know, we run on a train model. We're releasing every two weeks. And then I have other teams that are kind of doing this leapfrog model. Their software leverages the features that are in our core components. So I release on a two week 
basis, they're now releasing on demand on top of that code base. The core infrastructure gets released in the next two weeks. They build on top of that. And then they're responsible for the quality of their own code and, and how much they want user acceptance testing and you know how the frequency of their own releases. And so really working at this sort of hybrid model of stability, you know, security is rock solid, the databases, core services, um, you know, we've got SLAs and uptime, you know, hard uptime requirements and, you know, 24 seven, everything. And then the agility for the data science and computational biology teams. That sounds good. This question about the 500 sort of line guidance for pull requests. To me, 450 lines seems like a lot of code to try to internalize, to read, to understand, and to see the interactions of. Uh, my gut or my, my past experience would say, I'd like it to be under 100, please. And that's not always going to be possible. But if someone's writing a 500 line pull request, I feel like there's probably an opportunity to break that up into more digestible chunks. How did you get to that number? How often is that guideline followed? Be frank about it. The, it was here before I got here. Uh, when I got <laughs> here, originally the company was founded by our CTO and like three other you know, core engineers. And they laid down like a lot of the core infrastructure. And part of that was a sort of style guide of, mm -hmm. hey, you know, 500, yeah, it could be smaller, but as an upper limit. Mm -hmm. um, now that said, I've had engineers that really struggled with that. I mean, they're like, I've got this, you know, 3,000, this 5,000 line, you know, uh, monolith. Monstrosity. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, again, the 500 limit, like, really served us well. I mean, it's like, yeah, and, you know, you need to break it into pieces that are digestible. And, um, and so I agree. I think uh, 500 lines itself can be a lot, uh, but that at least gives us a reasonable envelope to work within. Do you have any stats on agility, on timing? So you could say, look, if it's under 100 lines, it tends to get reviewed within 12 hours. And if it's between 100 and 400 lines, it tends to get reviewed in 36 hours. Yeah, I think that would be a great metric. We don't, we haven't gotten to it ourselves. I think, you know, again, tools like Git Prime, um, you know, give you that visibility. And I think there's some really interesting things that could come out of that. Yeah. Are there things that you wish you did slightly differently around sort of the code review and especially securing your code, you know, and, and making sure it's correct that um, you haven't done yet or that you're trying to do now? Yeah, you know, one thing that's, that can happen, or there's a couple, but one is that, uh, you know, sort of code review fatigue or design review fatigue. Oh, so, yeah. Like people go like around the block on, on the design review and they kind of like get worn out and they like, okay, whatever. And then, you know, it gets down to the end and the code review, you know, everybody's worn out at exactly the wrong time when you they don't give the code review the attention it deserves. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. They just, Oh yeah. Well, I saw that in design review just fine. Rubber stamp. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I think, um, have, you know, keeping enough momentum so that, uh, you know, cause obviously when it gets, you know, code reviews are, or when it's down to the wire, right? I mean, it's like, it's actually making it into the code base. Mm -hmm. And if you've 
kind of worn everybody down or worn yourself down um, when you get to that last mile, that's actually when you need to, you know, have enough momentum to finish the race, right? I mean, it's like, okay, like we really need to be looking at it now. So that's one. I think um, the other is, again, it just gets down to a cultural issue of, um, you know, as humans, we're pretty conflict avoidant. And if, you know, Unless you think someone else is wrong. <laughs> I disagree, Max. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. So, uh, you know, there can be, you know, hurt feelings. There can be, you know, people that are trying to avoid each other. Um, and I think it's really, really important to just, you know, kind of, work through those things as proactively and ongoing and never really assume that that you just just always have that edge of like hey we can get better about code reviews that it's really important to keep the culture healthy don't take it for granted um you know one problem with sprint planning or agile in, in general is um it can get tedious right i mean if you're having week sprints two week sprints and you're doing that 52 weeks a year uh, without, you know, well-defined goals or something to celebrate. Um, it can just, you know, get to be um, a death march if, um, you know, if if it's not uh, sort of, you know, managed effectively. And so, code reviews can be the same thing, right? It's like, hey, if we're doing this day in, day out. How do you maintain some sense of momentum, some sense of accomplishment, some sense of where we're at, you know, in the cycle? So we actually have something to celebrate. There's actually an accomplishment um, because I think that's a real issue. Totally. How do you deal with conflicting check-ins? You know, the person A over here has reviewed this code, person B is reviewing some other code. They're actually trying to change the same thing. No one realized it ahead of time. Ah. People then start gnashing their teeth. Yeah. So again, getting uh, is, is really, really supporting people in getting up out of their seats, talking to people, socializing things early on. When you see the conflict, then you know again, it go up, lean into it, um, try to catch these things as early as possible. That is, um, I think, a huge role that managers and tech leads can play is having enough visibility so that we're not developing things in silos, um, duplicating efforts, stepping on each other's toes. Cool. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Good. Yeah, thank you.